In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. December 17, 2006, the New York Times headline read, Eli Lilly said to play down risk of top pill. With this article by Alex Berenson, the Zyprexa papers became public. The ultimate investigation by the U.S. Justice Department resulted in the largest sum for both a corporate whistleblower claim and the largest criminal fine ever imposed by the U.S. upon a single company. On today's podcast, we welcome Jim Godstein, famous for subpoenaing and releasing the Zyprexa papers. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I am Dr. Roger McFillin for all fans out there. Take a step back. Look at your phone. Find five stars <laughs> on uh, Apple and give us a rating. If you're not a fan of the podcast, don't hit anything. <laughs> <laughs> You can email us, give us some feedback. You can email us through our website, www.radgenpod.com. That's it. Some interesting news recently. Alex Berenson is back on Twitter. Sean, you, have you been following Eric uh, Alex Berenson over the past uh, two years? Yeah, I'm, I'm aware of how he got kicked off Twitter. Um, and the story behind it and a lot of the things he was sharing during the, uh, the COVID crisis and, and why he got kicked off. So yeah, there was an interest there. And I was recently listening to another of my, my daily podcasts and, and I heard them speaking about the situation and, and what the latest is. So it's interesting. Why don't you go ahead and share? Yeah. Alex Berenson is somebody that I was following on Twitter for some information regarding the efficacy of vaccines with COVID. And one of the things that was, I think, special about Alex Berenson was his history as a New York Times columnist. And personally, you know, at that time, as many of our listeners know, I was knee deep in a lot of the, the literature on safety and efficacies of antidepressants because we were creating some position statements here for our practice. And once I've, you know, learned about how these drugs came to market, some of the fraud the problems within the clinical trials, how they were marketed. I was obviously very skeptical about vaccines for a novel virus in a short amount of time. So ultimately, I think that what drew me to Alex Berenson was somebody else who was a skeptic and wanted to approach putting anything into our bodies with um, some healthy degree of skepticism and challenging authority. And so he recently was brought back onto Twitter. He was kicked off for, quote unquote, spreading misinformation about the efficacy or the safety of COVID vaccines. He has since been vindicated as a lot of the data now comes in. And just as sometimes the universe allows us to be connected to people that um, are outside of our normal day to day, it was funny that I got an email from our our guest today. Mm -hmm. And our, our guest is an attorney and he's an advocate for people diagnosed with serious mental illness. But Mr. Jim Gottstein is most famously known for subpoenaing, subpoenaing and releasing the Zyprexa papers in late 2006, resulting in a series of New York Times articles and an editorial which calling for congressional investigation into the safety of the drug. You know who wrote that article? Alex Berenson. Alex Berenson. So you know that Alex Berenson was somebody who was a skeptic because he had intimate knowledge of the pharmaceutical industry's practices. Yeah. Right? So in, uh, 2000, uh, in January 2009, Eli Lilly, who was the pharmaceutical company that manufactured the drug Zyprexa, mm -hmm. pled guilty and agreed to pay one point. Four billion in civil and criminal fines for the activities that were revealed in the Zyprexa papers. Um, in 2020, Jim, our guest, 
published his book, The Cyprexa Papers, giving a firsthand account of what really happened, uh, including his battles with the powerful legal teams that represent Eli Lilly, and also his work on behalf of a psychiatric patient by the name of Bill Bigley, um, who's really made this ordeal uh, possible to subpoena this information and expose the Cyprexa papers. Um, I think it's safe to say um, it was a heroic act on, on his part and saved tens of thousands of lives while placing himself at risk for criminal prosecution. Uh, he founded a, the Law Project for Psychiatric Rights, and uh, we are actually extremely honored today to, um, to have him in a, a radically conversation, have a radically genuine conversation. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. Uh, you're uh, very flattering. I, I might just mention that I tried to get Alex to read my book from before it was published. And uh, he's, he said he's too busy saving the world, which is... Yeah. <laughs> So um, a- anyway, yeah, that's an interesting uh, little convergence there. Yeah, Alex is doing great work. I'm a big fan of, of his, and I, I think it's, it's coming from a place of, you know, just being very conscious of the harms that can be created by pharmaceuticals and really believing in informed consent and respecting individ- everyone's individual rights to make choices or decisions in the best interest of their own health, their own body, and their welfare. Which brings me to an opening question. A lot, a lot of our listeners might not understand your background, but could you tell us really how you got involved in such a passionate way uh, in, in psychiatric legal advocacy? Well, in 1982, when I was 29, I got into a situation where I didn't get sleep. Um, and basically, I they call it psychotic, but I went crazy. And I I subsequently learned anybody who doesn't sleep for long enough will, will basically lose it. And um, I I don't have a particularly high tolerance for lack of sleep. And so, you know, I'd been pretty successful before that. um, And I had no idea that my mind could, you know, become unreliable. But anyway, it did. Um, And uh, it was in June, uh, June in Anchorage, Alaska, and I, I had tried, I'd gone to my dad's house to try and get some sleep over there, and I had just fallen asleep when, um, I mean, I think for like a second, which is something that, you know, I've experienced, you know, when I come out of what my, you know, what's called a manic ep- episodes before. But anyway, I'd just fallen asleep. And I woke up and I heard the devil coming down the hall. So I uh, I was on the second floor and I went over to the window and I looked down and there was um, the lawn down there and the sidewalk. And I and I uh, knew how to do a parachute landing fall. So I uh, I thought, well, if I miss the sidewalk, I'll be okay. I was in my underwear. It was uh, one in the morning and it was light because it was June. So I jumped out, I missed the sidewalk, I did a perfect uh, parachute landing fall and I uh, didn't hurt myself, but I got grabbed and hauled into the hospital in a straitjacket. Um, and uh, so they shot me up with something that put me to sleep. And so I, I wake up in this bed and there's this uh, attendant at the foot of the bed with a clipboard and he asked me, uh, what day is it? And so I say, I ask him, how long have I been asleep? So he writes down that I don't know what day it is. And that's kind mm-hmm. of the way it went. And um, they, um, people that believed uh, that, I, that I was a lawyer said that I would never be able to practice law again. And, the, and when I told them I'd gone to Harvard Law School, they, uh, that confirmed that I was delusional. Of course, all this stuff is verifiable. Anyway, I lucked in. They said that I would, you know, have to be on these drugs for the rest of my life. I was put on Melaril. Um, I said, I don't want Thorazine. And they said, oh, this is Melaril. It's nothing like Thorazine. Well, of course, it's exactly like Thorazine. 
And, um, but I really lucked into a psychiatrist who said that I just gotten into a situation where um, I didn't get sleep, that I could learn to deal with that and get on with my life. And so I feel like I was extremely lucky to have escaped uh, a career as a mental patient um, for the rest of my life. And, and that really changed, changed a lot of, you know, the way I thought about the world. But, um, so that's really what triggered my, um, psychiatric, um, advocacy. Although I had actually was in the middle of doing this lawsuit against the state of Alaska for stealing a million acres of land that had been granted to, um, Alaska's mental health program and trust. Um, but in any event, um, so that's what did it. And then when I read Mad in America by uh, Robert Whitaker in 2002, um, to me, it was a litigation roadmap on how to challenge forced drugging, not simply based on uh, people's, you know, human rights and, and uh, informed consent per se, but that well, when you're being forced drugged, you don't get any, you know, any consent. Your consent is taken away from you. And um, but based on the idea that it was that's not in people's best interest. So I contacted him. I got him to send me all all the research that he cited. And it's on psychrights.org, uh, the, the Law Project for Psychiatric Rights website, um, all of the, the actual studies uh, that he cited in Mad in America. And so that's uh i had pretty much known what the story was with the drugs before but didn't think i had had anything particular to uh contribute to the uh effort against the forced drugging but with reading that in america i felt that i did so you mentioned that i mean the way that you view it is that you got lucky and that's sad for me to hear because when we're talking about a healthcare profession we shouldn't look at things in terms of being lucky to get somebody who is actually ethical and scientific. So bottom line here is that you were sleep deprived and exhibiting symptoms associated with sleep deprivation. But you were, when you were admitted into the inpatient hospital, the exact symptoms that you were presenting with were labeled as a mental illness. And and that mental illness itself will require a certain drug for the rest of your life. And now you're labeled as mentally ill. And if you're mentally ill, well, then you're disabled and you're unable then to um, produce in society or re-engage in your profession as you, up to that point, were able to successfully do. Right. And that's what happens to the vast majority of people that get, um, you know, get hauled in to to the system is they, you know, their, their lives are ruined. And in fact, um, that's what happened to Bill Bigley. And uh, as I write in my book, he, he, he was two months older than me and he got hauled into uh, API, the Alaska Psychiatric Institute, um, two years before I was, and he was just slammed with Haldol. Um, and he didn't have my, you know, social privileges. He was a little tiny Alaska native, but it, it, his his psychiatrist at the hospital was the same as the one that saved my life. His name was Robert Alberts, and, and he was really an incredible guy. Um, and the the discharge notes on uh, on that first um, admission was that his prognosis was guarded, depending on how he was uh, helped to deal with this uh, divorce that he had and his, you know, losing his daughters and being saddled with uh, support payments he couldn't handle, which is what really brought him in. And of course, he wasn't given any help with that. He was cooperative and took the drugs um, and then was discharged, came back. Um, I think the third time he started refusing. And so then they started forcing him. And by the time I met him in you know, in early December 2006, he'd been hospitalized over about 70 times and his life had just been ruined. And, you know, I think there, but for the grace of God, go I, frankly, or anyone really. So Jim, I got a question when you were um, in 2000, 
too, when you had that lack of sleep, what law, what law were you practicing at the time? I'm sorry. What, what law were you focused on at that time? Um, it, it was basically business law that my okay. uh, family had. Yeah, business law, basically. Got it. And I so, had, yeah, and I actually was doing this mental health trust case, but I had to give it up at the time. Yeah, so it's interesting, this profound experience that could have went in, in you know, a different direction and really negatively impacted your life actually inspires you to go down a path and dedicate your career to advocate for those who are, would be placed in similar positions. Now, the, the book Zyprexa Papers is um, a fascinating account of a lot of details around the, the legal system, the power of big pharma, and how we as individuals, consumers, um, our best interests are not always taken into account in the United States legal and healthcare system. Now, I really do suggest that if you are listening to the podcast, you get the book because you're going to, you know, you're going to get lost into it. Like I got lost into some of the details. I learned so much about the legal process, the law. I think what was so riveting for me, Jim, was your, you know, your thought process each step of the way and what led to your decision-making me as a psychologist, just fascinating about some of the moral dilemmas that were presented. But for our listeners, could you um, just kind of briefly tell us how you received the, the Zyprexa papers? You bet. So it was, I think November 28th, 2006, when I got this call out of the blue from this, um, uh, Dr. David Eagleman, who is an expert witness in this massive litigation over Zyprexa causing diabetes and other metabolic problems. And he had access to all what's called discovery, um, which in litigation where the, the parties have to exchange information. And that, that discovery was placed under a secrecy order that uh, provided that if he was subpoenaed in, from in another case that he had to give Eli Lilly notice and a reasonable opportunity to object before he uh, complied with the subpoena. So he, um, and he was already working with Alex Berenson at the New York Times. And so, and Alex had found this report um, that was posted on our website by Dr. Grace Jackson on Zyprexa that um, I had uh, submitted as uh, in a case the Faith Myers case, which is, is, has its uh, own interesting story. But um, it's called uh, olanzapine, which is the uh, chemical name for Zyprexa, dubious, uh, dangerous drug, dubious efficacy or something like that. So anyway, Alex had found it and he told Dr. Eagleman, well, maybe you should call this Godstein guy and see if he'll subpoena you. And um, so, uh, when he finally got around to telling me that's what he was about, you know, I said, yeah, I, you know, I, I'd, uh, I'd be happy to do it. And I had my own reasons for doing it and he had his, his reasons for doing it. Um, and so I had to go look for a case and that's where I, because you can't, you can't just subpoena someone, you've got to have a case to do it. So um, I went looking for Bill and that, that was a whole story in itself, because in Alaska, they really keep these um, proceedings to, if we're going to be uh, radically genuine, um, mm. psychi I mean, psychiatrically imprisoned people. I mean, that's really what involuntary commitment is. And, but they keep them really secret. And even though the statute says that the person, uh, that the hearing shall be open or closed to the public as the respondent, which is the person being accused of being mentally ill, shall elect. Uh, but they never told the person, and there was never any case that had been public uh, before I started taking these cases. Anyway, um, so I found Bill, and uh, I was accused of ambulance chasing and all that. But anyway, so... Um, Can I stop so you there? So... Um I will stop you here and there because there's just like interesting parts of the story. I want to make sure our audience gets this. You know, at this time, are you, you're, you're looking for a case in order for you to legally um, obtain these, these papers and then to try to protect the public? Correct. 
Okay. Um, for yeah. our for our audience, what is Zyprexa? So Zyprexa, I mean, it's marketed as a quote atypical antipsychotic, but I I don't like to use that term. I use the term neuroleptic, which was the, one of the original terms, which means seize the brain, which is what it does, and um, and and basically. It blocks 70 to 90% of the dopamine in the frontal lobe and the basal ganglia in the limbic system. And so I used to think of, think of them as chemical straitjackets before I knew more about it, but actually they're chemical lobotomies because they block the uh, transmission of dopamine in the frontal lobe. So um, I could go more, you know, a little bit more on what happens, which, but basically the response of the brain to that is to because the the blockage is to pump out more dopamine for a few weeks and then the brain will grow more dopamine receptors so where they've never found any kind of brain abnormality in people diagnosed with schizophrenia or any other you know actual you know what's uh described as a quote mental illness um once these drugs have been introduced uh then you do see uh, brain changes. And then if someone quits the drug, especially abruptly, you have this flood of dopamine and that causes symptoms, uh, which then, you know, the psychiatrist says, see, your mental illness is coming back when actually it's uh, the withdrawal uh, from the drug. Okay. So, you know, at this time you're, you're very educated already at the danger, dangers of these drugs, but in order for you to obtain some of this information that's under a, a protective privacy order, you have to subpoena these papers for a case that you're on, which you don't have at this point. Right. So um, I, you know, I talked to Bill and um, I knew that Zyprexa was uh, used pretty uh, extensively um, at the hospital at that time. And I asked him, you know, are, you know, have you on, you know, been given Zyprexa, and he never really gave me a clear answer. And but I was pretty sure he had been. And uh, I mean, that led to problems later. Um, and uh, so I subpoenaed, you know, so um, so yeah, you have to have a reason. And um, so the point was is that, and and in the Myers case, which I had I mentioned before, the. Uh, uh, with the Grace Jackson report, um, I had won this Alaska Supreme Court decision that said, um, well, the statute says that if the person is incompetent to uh, decline the medication, then the hospital gets to do whatever they want. And I went in and I said, no, you, you, that, you, they can't do that. They've got to at least prove that it's in the person's best interest and there's no less intrusive alternative. And so, and they agreed with me on that. And um, so, so then the legal basis was, for, was well, you shouldn't be allowed to uh, drug Bill with, with these drugs um, because it's not in, the, in his best interest. And here are these secret documents that will show that. And so I'm entitled to these documents to help prove my case that Bill should not be drugged against his will. Okay. What, what is the secret information that is in this doc documents that can serve the public? Well, so first off, I'm under an, an injunction not to um, further disseminate the Zyprexa paper. So I can't really say that, but, but um, there are, you know, numerous newspaper reports, but I can say that, I can really answer your question. I mean, they caused diabetes and they hid that from the doctors. They caused diabetes and they cause other metabolic problems. And a pretty high percentage of people do uh, have significant uh, weight gain. And many people would gain 100 pounds in a year. And people that got diabetes got diabetes even if they didn't gain weight. And um, so that's, you know, that's a deadly thing. I mean, um, I tend to say that, you know, tens of thousands of people have been killed by Zyprexa, but 
I don't uh, don't know if you know Dr. Peter Gercher, who's one of the you know most uh, maybe published medical researchers in the world, um, and he calculates that uh, by that time uh, four hundred thousand people have been killed by Zyprexa. So, wow. um, this, you know, and the fact you know so these are just this is just staggering harm. And this was being hidden from the doctors. And, uh, and so, you know, I thought maybe the public should uh, be informed of this. Absolutely. So you're kind of faced with this, I guess I'm going to describe it as a moral dilemma, because you have to determine, you have to, you have to protect yourself legally, because if any way you distribute this information, you potentially could be violating the law and putting yourself at risk. While at the same time, you're, you have this information that you know is harmful to hundreds and thousands of people. I think at the time, Zyprexa was their, one of their top-selling drugs. I think it was like grossing a billion? Number one. Five was number billion one. a year. Five billion. Yeah. Grossing five billion a year. And you have the privilege of, have, of having this information that demonstrates that that people could develop metabolic syndrome, diabetes, cardiovascular problems, significant weight gain. People will die from taking this drug. So I'm just really interested in kind of maybe understanding, you know, what you were going through emotionally at that time, how you came about making the decisions that you did. Well, first off, I, I was determined to, to do things legally. And so my, my, my position was is that Dr. Eagleman was the one who signed, you know, onto that secrecy order and he had to follow it. And so when I subpoenaed him, he had to give Eli Lilly a reasonable opportunity to object before he, he gave them to me. And I expected that they would object and that I would be in court arguing to the judge in Alaska why, you know, Bill Bigley was entitled to these documents to defend against being drugged against his will because it showed that it wasn't in his best interest. But um, I, I, I mean, there were some, you know, games played. So, for example, Eagleman sent the notice to the general counsel of Eli Lilly, figuring it would take a little while to get to the lawyers handling the case. And, and um, then there was, um, well, I maybe get into that later, but um, but when I, but once I had the documents, as far as I was concerned, I was free to distribute them. But I also because you hadn't really, signed you know, any document, is it because you hadn't yeah, signed they, any agreement? Right, and and they had been, um, yeah, and they'd come out from under the the secrecy order, and mm-hmm. so, um, but I uh, I. Even though Lily had been slow, I knew that once they got going, they'd be big and fast. So once I found that I had them, I got them out fast. And I, and I got them out, I tried to get them out in a way that they could not be gotten back. Um, and uh, so they ended up, and I, and I, in the book, I you know, disclose um, who the people were that got them out on the internet in this, uh, I think it's called BitTorrent or Tor, and it was kind of a precursor to WikiLeaks. Um, and so I got them out to them most, and, and I was, I was, I, I was making DVDs of these. Um, and it was right there, you know, it was kind of during the Christmas rush. And anyway, I had my, I had my music, you know, uh, rock music going in the background. And I had three computers making DVDs, um, you know, addressing envelopes and going out to the, to the post office and putting them in, uh, in the mail. Um, and, and, and I, it, it, uh, it, one of my thoughts was it was kind of amusing. I knew it was right in the Christmas rush. And so it might take weeks for some of these to get somewhere. And it did. Um, but this was, uh, I think, on December 12, 2006. And the New York Times, the first article came out on December 17. So um, 
in addition to the DVDs, I had set up a what's called an FTP file transfer protocol, uh, which is designed to uh, send a lot of files and big files over the internet. And uh, uh, that's how Will Hall, who put them out on the internet, got them. And that's uh, how Alex Berenson uh, got them as well. So if uh, um, so anyway, that's, uh, and then that's what happened. And then of course, Eli Lilly did get big and fast. I mean, it's kind of amazing how they could whistle up federal judges to uh, issue orders against me. Yeah, I mean, there, this book plays out like a movie. So I, I almost like saw it in my mind. <laughs> like there, there's a movie and I think this is, would be a great movie. Um, I, I do hope somebody out there turns this book into a movie. And one of the things that really stand, stands out is that, you know, you're, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this, like the stress that you're under. I already know because you wrote about it that when, you're, when you struggle with sleep and sleep can become a problem, you really struggle with your, your own mental health. And these, these Eli Lilly attorneys are like pit bulls and they don't sleep. Like they don't ever sleep because they're, they're, they're emailing you at like three in the morning and two in the morning with questions. But back to the moral dilemma you were facing, you know, you had to determine what is a reasonable amount of time for them to object. Now that seems very arbitrary. No, that was Dr. Eagleman's call. Okay. I subpoenaed him. He, it was his right. obligation. And Lily screwed up. I mean, in all kinds of ways. Okay. Um, so for example, the, the, he subpoenaed and it, someone who subpoenaed has the right to object to a subpoena. And then when they object to the subpoena, everything stops. Okay, so, and under this agreement that he signed, you know, he has to notify Lily, and then he has to do what Lily says. And so Lily should have just directed him to object. But they but they didn't. Instead, I get this call, um, I forget when it was. It was a couple days after uh, they got out uh, from the, Eli, Eli Lilly got a lawyer in Alaska and he called and left. Uh, it was Hanukkah. So I'd gone home a little bit early and so it was late afternoon and he left a voicemail on my, on my uh, voicemail, which I picked up later that night. And, and uh, so I thought, I don't want to seem like, and then I immediately tell Eagleman, Dr. Eagleman, they're on to us. And so, um, and he decides that they've had a reasonable opportunity to object. And uh, so I decide, I think, I don't want him to think that I'm avoiding him, uh, but I don't really want to talk to him right now. And so, so I call him first thing in the morning at eight in the morning, figuring he's not going to be there. And, and that's, and I left a message for him and I didn't hear back from him until uh, a couple days later that Friday. Uh, and then I got all these threatening letters uh, from uh, Eli Lilly. And then the special discovery master calls and leaves a message to call him over the weekend. And then a few hours later, or, you know, issues this order saying uh, to return him and, and uh, not to further disseminate him. And I say, how do you get to order me about? Um, so we're off to the races at that point. Oh, and, and then, that's where the... and then, um, then the New York Times article breaks. That I think it was that Sunday. Yeah, and that's where the book really picks off, and and where the movie will pick off too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would really love to see the movie because I'm imagining it's the Home Alone scene. You got your Christmas music playing in the background, rocking around the uh, the Christmas tree, and you're just burning DVDs and mailing them out right before the holidays. That would be fascinating well, to see. Well, Stewart, so it's not really a Christmas tree, but that's the idea. Um, I do have to, I, I worked in the business field and I worked in advertising. And often we would rely upon a, um, a tech study that would provide us with information that would guide us in terms of how we were going to market a product, you know, features, benefits, and then ultimately what would set our product apart from any other. So in these papers that you identified, was there anything that jumped out to you that ultimately led to this, um, the settlement of the $1.4 billion? 
Well, I mean, there were two parts to it. Well, the settlement was not, well, there were two settlements. There was the settlements and all of the damaged people that sued. Um, and so that was over the damage. But then the, the one that you mentioned, the $1.4 billion with the government, that was over um, basically uh, illegal promotion. Mm-hmm. So um, doctors can prescribe any drug that's approved for any use. Doctors can prescribe uh, for, well, drugs are um, approved for specific uses. Um, and But doctors can prescribe for any use. But the drug companies can only uh, promote uh, approved uses. And so at that point, Zyprexa had only been approved for um people diagnosed with schizophrenia and uh, by maybe bipolar disorder by that time. And so, but they were marketing it to uh, children. I mean, and they were marketing it. And, and this is, you know, a really damaging drug. And they were marketing it to the elderly in basically in nursing homes. I mean, what happens is, you know, people don't like being in those places a lot or they complain and you give them Zyprexa and they're not able to complain anymore. They hardly, you can't even get out of bed. Um, and then they die and the, you know, the people say, oh, well, you're, you know, your mother was old. So I got a, a question. We, um, we had recently um, had the discussion with, uh, with Patrick Hahn on obedience pills uh, about ADHD medication, the medication of children, which we all agree, you know, shouldn't really be happening. Um, during this period of time, uh, when this mar- was marketed to children, I listened to another speech of yours. I think you were giving a lecture, and you you said at one time uh, children would be put into a category, and we would never drug them. But between like 1995 and 2005, there was this dramatic change in the approach. What was happening during that time? Well, Johnson and Johnson. I mean, there was always ADHD, and the stimulants that. Uh, uh, cause a pretty significant number of children given the stimulants like Ritalin or Stratera or whatever, Adderall, they, it causes them to become manic. So then they get diagnosed with bipolar disorder, but there's a psychiatrist at Harvard Medical School that Johnson and Johnson paid to do a study that said Risperdal was safe and effective for the use in children. And so he's been attributed to, uh, uh, the a four, uh, 40 times increase in the diagnosis of uh, bipolar disorder in children in 10 years. So, and there's, I mean, that was in a different case that where some secret documents got out. And there was an email that there's all these email exchanges between Biederman and, and Johnson and Johnson. And basically where he says, I'm going to do this study and the result is going to be it that uh, risk all should be used in children. What's interesting uh, at that time, so around uh, when you were going through this uh, and the, the Zyprexa papers were released in New York Times article and so forth, at that time I was in the middle of my doctoral program and I was at a, a placement in a, a com- community mental health center and I remember the psychiatrist telling me that if any of my clients who are prescribed an SSRI exhibit any mania or manic symptoms that that would mean that they are bipolar and then the next drug that should be placed is some neuroleptic some form of quote-unquote mood stabilizer which at the time was zyprexa you know a lot and i was i almost fell off my chair reading your book where this was deliberate on part of the marketing teams to push that information without any scientific basis, knowing that a side effect of SSRIs in a percentage of the population is going to be mania, to be able to increase the sale of Zyprexa, they told the physicians, many of them primary care physicians who just don't have the background, knowledge, or time for full examinations, they just informed them that this just means they're bipolar and you have to add Zyprexa. Yeah, and they, you know, they say, oh, uh, the antidepressant, so-called antidepressant, unmasked your, di- you know, bipolar disorder. And um, what's the, oh, I can't think of his name. There's a, a psychiatrist in, 
also at Harvard. And he, you know, the, the antidepressants also cause uh, suicidality and, you know, violence. And, um, and so he did this study where, you know, he had, well, he noticed in patients that they became, you know, agitated and violent. And so he said, well, let's stop the drug. And he stopped the drug and that, that, uh, that reaction ceased. And they said, well, let's see what happens when we start it again. And they, they started the drug again and that, you know, symptom reoccurred and they stopped it and stopped. And so, you know, there's this idea that these randomized controlled uh, studies are the gold standard, but this is called a challenge, de-challenge, re-challenge. And that's really good evidence. And as I write in my book, they, they really, um, you know, cook the books on these randomized controlled uh, trials in order to uh, make their drugs look. So um, I, the question I have right now is after this settlement happened in, uh, was it uh, January of 2009? So problem's been solved, right? Well, uh, you know, the, a bunch of states sued Lilly over the, the cost of treating diabetes and other metabolic problems that they had to pay through their Medicaid programs. And Alaska was one of them. And it was the first case to go to trial. And at that point, I thought foolishly that Lily was negotiating some kind of settlement with me. And I, and I mentioned to them, you know, they're still forcing Zyprexa on people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so then they brought it up in the trial. <laughs> so I was kind of upset with myself on that. But, um, you know, Zyprexa is off patent now. So Lily doesn't really care that much. I mean, it, it, they still sell a lot of it. Um, but it's kind of amazing how they come out with this new drug that's not really any different or any better and probably not as good if they're good at all. Um, and more harmful. And they get the, they get the, the doctors psychiatrists and other prescribers to prescribe the latest drugs that haven't really, you know, nobody has any really experience and they cost a, you know, a ton of money, much more than the older ones. And they get the doctors to prescribe this stuff. Jim, I got a, I got a question and maybe you can answer it for me. Cause sometimes I feel like I live on another planet. <laughs> um, you know, I, we have all this information, you know, I, I've been seeing it decades, like how, how the health of clients who were, who were diagnosed with serious mental health conditions, such as bipolar or schizophrenia, how it, you know, it just declined dramatically and their, their functioning has really decreased. So it's not like we have all this, this empirical data from strong clinical trials. And we certainly don't have the anecdotal evidence or the observational evidence that these drugs are highly effective. And I don't care what the drug is. Help me get into the minds of these doctors who keep repeating the same things over and over again and are able to take this information that are from pharmaceutical salespeople and then continue to make the same mistakes, the next drug, the next drug. What is going on there? What's the other side of this? So, I, you know, I showed this to you a little before. I mean, it's, it, I don't know if you can hear, but. Can, can, can you hear. Uh, can you see that? Oh, or is that backwards? No, nope, anyway. we can see it. It's it's Lucy. You're holding up a shirt of uh, Lucy from uh, the Peanuts. Psychiatric help. The doctor was uh, fooled or complicit. Fooled or complicit. So, yes, for our listeners and, that can't see. Yeah, yeah, and I and I haven't. Um, you know, I try not to attribute bad motives to people, and you know, it seems like these people want to help. Um, so. They're, you know, maybe they're fooled, but at this point, it's the evidence is just overwhelming about how harmful these drugs are, how counterproductive they are. Um, I mean, there's, um, it's pretty clear that people that present with a first time psychosis, if you take a different approach, like the Soteria approach or open dialogue approach, that 
you can get and, and really avoid the use of neuroleptics, if at all possible, that you can get an 80% recovery rate. Okay, we have a 5% recovery rate. And, and I rely heavily on Robert Whitaker's work. And he, um, and, and one, of the, one of the graphs he has is that the rate of disability on a per capita basis because of mental illness, where mental illness is, you know, attributed as the cause of the disability, has gone up eight times since the introduction of the so-called miracle drug Thorazine in, in the mid-1950s. Okay, so we have this evidence. And then there's, um, it, it's, there's this study by Harrow and Job that, that shows that people who have been on the neuroleptics for a while and then get off of them have a 40% chance of recovering. So that's eight times better than the 5%, but it's half of what it, what it would be if we avoided them in the first place. And, um, you know, so why is this allowed to happen? I mean, I think, you know, you just have to say it's the money. Um, you know, there's just so much money. And, but why the doctors go along with it? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, you could say it's kind of a mass delusion. I mean, like, I, you know, I mentioned Dr. Grace Jackson. And she was a, a Navy psychiatrist at Bethesda, and she'd been trained the way they all have. Um, and she was treating patients, and she saw that they weren't, it wasn't helping them. So then she looked into it and, you know, and discovered the truth about it. And so she, she refused to do it. Well, she got drummed out of the Navy and almost lost her, her license to practice law. And she, I think she had to file bankruptcy at one point. And so um, uh, one other little anecdote. So uh, I, after I read Mad in America in 2002, I, brought, I actually brought Bob Whitaker, Robert Whitaker, up to Alaska. And one of the things I, I, I got him to do is go give a talk at the Alaska Psychiatric Institute. And we, you know, they had psychiatrists and other staff members and even uh, psychiatrists from the community come in and he gave his talk. And I would say the kind of feeling in the room was, well, even if we agree with what you say, and we kind of do, we wouldn't be allowed to do what you suggest. And so um, that's not the way doctors are supposed to be, but um, that's the way they are. I mean, society has this idea, you know, that they need to drug these people to, you know, keep them from being killed in their, um, you know, in their sleep. Um, when the truth is that when you look at all these mass shootings, I mean, everybody wants to blame mental illness and we need to do more uh, mental health treatment, that virtually all of them were on psych drugs and often, um, uh, the antidepressants. You know, it's not a large number of people that are on them that become violent. Um, but when you have tens of millions of people on them, a small, you know, a small number who, you know, become homicidal uh, results in what we're seeing. Yeah, Jim, I, I think this podcast episode is so important because history matters. And so we're sitting here and we're in 2022. All this happened, you know, in around 2006, 2007, you know, this was in the, 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 the national media. It was something that was certainly part of our, our discourse, but here we are, we're in 2022 and there's still people being prescribed Zyprexa mm -hmm. and patients and families, they do not receive informed consent. I'm just going to give you a quick story because I got permission from a, a client who I just previously conducted an evaluation on and these type of situations are all too familiar. Um, started, episode started with having COVID. And post-COVID had about 13 days straight of a horrible migraine. And this particular person was placed on daily steroids, um, IV steroids, with a side effect of that being mania. So she was getting um, IV steroids um, going in to hospitals days after days, 
um, also taking some oral steroids, and additionally was smoking marijuana throughout the day to try to alleviate the pain. And then she went into a, a manic episode. And the manic episode was severe, and it required, uh, it required hospitalization. And she was told that she has bipolar 1 disorder and is in a manic episode and was prescribed Zyprexa, amongst other drugs. So it's usually not just one drug someone's prescribed, it's multiple. And it's the interaction between the drugs. It's providing a label without addressing the cause. So it's very clear that a lot, there's a high percentage of people that are prone to going into manic episodes from, being, from that steroid. But yet she's now labeled with bipolar 1 disorder and it's an illness that she has to manage for the rest of her life. And she's going to be placed on a drug, a drug that creates metabolic syndrome, has significant side effects, and then you're interacting it with other drugs that haven't been adequately studied. She's labeled with a, with a psychiatric diagnosis you can't test for. It's really the, the opinion of a psychiatrist, which was a resident at the time. And she just feels absolutely horrible. And Jim, people don't have this information. They assume these psychiatric diagnoses are valid, they're reliable, and we have, we have safe and effective drugs to treat them. And that's how the doctors communicate. Right. They don't, they don't tell. I mean, um, if each drug comes with what's called a label, which has, um, you know, all these information on, on the drugs. And for example, um, Zyprexa, you know, we'll say, you know, we'll have that on there. Um, and I, uh, one, one, and, and the drug companies really negotiate with the FDA to try and minimize, you know, the negative aspects of that. And in one of the, my uh, cross-examinations of a doctor in one of the Bill Bigley cases, I asked him about, well, doesn't it say here that um, Zyprexa causes, uh, or whatever drug it was, it's probably Risperdal, uh, causes psychosis? It says that right on the label, that Risperdal causes psychosis. It's supposed to be a treatment for psychosis, but it causes it. And so he says, oh, that, you know, that's the, the lawyers just made them do that. I, you know, I don't pay any attention to that. And, um, you know, and it's like uh, Dr. Joanna Moncrief just came out with this, this study that the uh, anti-SSRI antidepressants, that there's, well, that there's no evidence uh, that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance. And the thing about that, uh, you know, it got a lot of play. I mean, it, national media, and so it's like, oh, now this is, you know, out there. And um, but we've known about that for twenty years. Mm. And the and doc and and Dr. Ronald Pies, who was the head of the American Psychiatric Association, says, oh, we never told people there was a chemical imbalance. Well, I heard someone last week who was told that they had a chemical imbalance. So. Um, uh, it, I mean, it's so important for the public to know this stuff and it's so hard to get them to know it. And that's, you know, why I wrote the, you know, the book is, you know, I, I, I think it could be impactful if it, if it got enough, um, you know, play in the, in the general, uh, public, which it hasn't really. So, Jim, when it comes to protecting the public, since you brought up the FDA, isn't the FDA there to protect the safety and welfare of the public? I think it's fair to say that the FDA is captured by the industry. I mean, there's this uh, revolving door between the FDA and pharmaceutical companies. Um, I think it was in 1992, sometime in the 1990s, uh, Congress changed the way the FDA was financed. So basically, the FDA is financed by the drug companies. So they, the FDA charges the drug companies, you know, for the approval of their drugs. And so the drug companies pay for the approval of their drugs, and they get the approval of their drugs. I mean, um, so Jim, I've got a, I've got a question. Jim, do you recall what happened the very same day that the $1.4 billion federal, federal settlement regarding Zeprexa was announced with the FDA? Do you remember what happened that same day? 
I'll read it to you because I found this most interesting. Is on that very same day, the FDA issued guidance permitting pharmaceutical companies to bypass the prohibition of marketing off-label uses of drugs, allowing them to pass out medical journal articles that discuss these non-approved uses. So that was their way around marketing it, was to have medical journals do the work for them and have it distributed to the doctors. And that's another scandal, is the whole medical uh, research literature. A very large percentage of medical journal articles are ghostwritten by uh, the drug companies. And of course, the trials are all paid by the drug companies. It used to be universities would conduct um, you know, these drug trials. Not anymore. They have what they call contract research organizations that uh, do these studies. And, you know, if you want to get the next contract, you know, this contract better come out with the result that the drug company wants. And um, and then they pay these uh, key opinion leaders uh, to put their name on the articles. And they don't even allow these so-called authors access to the data. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's I mean, fundamentally. I. I don't think healthcare should be a profit-driven enterprise because it, it brings in all this stuff, all this corruption. Yeah, it's so unfortunate. The way that I started to think about things is we have to educate the next generation. And for us here at our practice, we developed some guidelines around the actual safety and efficacy of antidepressants because they're just astronomical, the rise in antidepressants that are just being handed out to developing teenagers and young people. Despite all the risks, it's almost like as if, as if it's candy. You know, it has, it has no risks. And these parents are actually, you know, scared to not accept the medical recommendations or the medical advice of their practitioners. So we, we, have, this, we have this system of like an expert culture here in the United States where we rely so much on, on doctors' opinions but the doctors have become nothing more than legalized drug dealers in our, in our healthcare systems. And it, this has to be a grassroots effort where we can just be able to openly discuss scientific findings and risks and benefits. And that's what is most concerning about where we are in the United States culture is there's a, there's a limitation that's really placed on our ability to really have these conversations and there's words like misinformation being thrown out or conspiracy theory. You know, this feels like a reasonable conversation based on actual evidence. But if you engage in the, with the greater public through social media or you talk to just people in your, in your friend group or, you know, that you socialize with, they kind of look at you like you're, like you're crazy by talking about this. My brother's right here. We've had so many early podcasts. He thought a lot of the things that I was talking about regarding the impact of the pharmaceutical industry and how we think about what is safe and what is healthy. He thought I was crazy. I was making most of it up. Yeah. um, I mean, I still think you're crazy about a lot of things, (laughs) but I I believe these to be accurate now. (laughs) Yeah. And so the question is, and you've dedicated your, 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 your adult life to this Jim. you know, through your, your advocacy, through the law project for psychiatric rights um, how do we begin to make changes? I mean, obviously it needs to be a grassroots effort that requires, you know, so many stakeholders to be able to have open dialogue and conversations, but the pharmaceutical industry is powerful, so powerful. How do we even begin to make changes and get this information out? So, you know, I mean, that's something that I've tried to work out for 20 years is, um, and I, you know, I don't know if you, you watch the video. There's a video where I talk about, um, you know, how I see changing this, the system, the mental health system, or I, I call it the mental illness system. Um, and, and of course, the, the most important thing is changing uh, public attitudes. And, you know, how do you break through? I mean, I remember when they first said, we got it, we got to stop. Uh, Trump on Twitter. And as much as, you know, you know, Trump is, you know, so totally bad news. To me, it was like, 
you know, this is a slippery slope. And I'm not a slippery slope kind of guy. I mean, normally when people make that argument, it's like, eh. But this one has proven to be true. And there's so much censorship going on now. I mean, I've got these videos on YouTube and I started to get concerned that they'll be taken down at some point. I mean, Alex Berenson is a perfect example. Um, and there are all these other people. If you don't, these days, if you don't go along with, you know, the authorities, then, you know, then you're doing misinformation and you should be stopped from uh, discussion. And it's like, um, you know, pe you know, the, nobody believes in the First Amendment anymore. And um, that's not the way, you know, to deal with this stuff. And um, I, I wish I had an answer. Now, I have a policy, uh, and I, for 20 years, of accepting every speaking invitation that I can. You know, I'm pretty open about my stuff, and I write stuff. And, you know, in a lot of ways, the Internet, you know, is kind of an equalizer. Um, I mean, I put stuff out, and people find it. But not enough people. Uh, I can't say anything I've done has gone quote viral, um, and I I I don't have a good answer for that other than uh, yeah I don't really have I mean I do what I can, and uh, but I I wouldn't say it's been successful and I and in a lot of ways I think things are getting worse. Jim and, and we'll do what we can too in terms of sharing links to to purchase uh, your book through Amazon and also directing our listeners to go to your website, your law project for psychiatric rights, aka Psych Rights. Um, uh, is it psychrights.com? Psychrights.org. Dot org. Okay, thank you for correcting me. Psychrights.org. Anybody listening, go down to the show summary. There's direct links there. Um, I did go to that destination. I found a lot of your lectures and your, your interviews. There's a lot of, uh, of content there for anybody who wants to, uh, to hear some of your, your speaking engagements and, and a bunch of other people as well. So it's, it's ripe for information. Yeah, one of the things that I want to add, I, I mean, there's been a, a new law that was passed in, I think it was California. Was it passed already? I'm not I think certain. it's I think it's a, a proposal. A proposal. Yeah, because I've seen some pushback from doctors. Good. Good. And and the the specifics around that were, you know, it, it gives the the state of California authority to remove the the license of a a medical professional if they believe they are spreading misinformation, and that's obviously extremely extremely concerning because one of the things that we know is what is believed to be established scientific fact in at any given time. Um, certainly could be nothing more than just propaganda. And I think when where I look at it is like right now, people still accept the efficacy of the chemical imbalance theory and that, that antidepressants work and they work by correcting a, a, an underlying chemical imbalance. And so if, that, if people believe that's established science, then... You know, you could lose your license for having conversations just like this. And, and science is a process. It's an open process that includes free speech and the ability to examine data, make sense of it, create new studies. It's constantly evolving. And that's what I think makes a free society is your ability to be able to continue to test, develop hypotheses, gather information and really respect everyone's individual rights. So um, for our listeners in, in California, that is AB2098. And I believe Gavin Newsom has three weeks to sign the bill, but he has yet to take a public position on it. And I think that was uh, as of yesterday, which would be August Dangerous. 30th, 31st. All right, so... Um, we really took a, a lot of your time, Jim. Um, before we conclude right now, are you uh, hanging out there uh, on the island of Maui? Are you partially retired at this, uh, this stage in the game? So I, I pretty much, I think I did my last litigation uh, act a, a week or so ago. But I'm, um, although there's one type of case that I, I would come out of retirement to do, 
which is a Medicaid fraud case against the psychiatric drugging of children and youth. Um, and there's information about that on psychrights.org. We could talk about it. Um, but I think that's potentially the most effective way to stop the drugging of children. But other than that, I, I think I'm done with litigation, but I'm really involved in trying to um, bring about alternatives uh, to the current paradigm. And so there was this last October, the five Octobers last, uh, last year, there was this uh, international peer respite and soteria summit where 750 people from 40 countries came together over, you know, Zoom, of course, and uh, had really great presentations and discussion about these alternatives. You know, the ones that I'm talking about that get 80% recovery rates and things like that. And and I've gotten really involved and I'm kind of, the you know, trying to be the, the designated the person to try and do it um, to uh, create more of these peer respites and soteria houses around the world to um, get people so people have those choices. And as a legal matter, people have the right to the least restrictive in, or in terms of psychiatric imprisonment and the least uh, intrusive alternative with respect to forced drugging. Um, and so it's really important to have these alternatives available. So I'm, I'm working really hard on that. And I'm on the board of, uh, for about a year now, a little over, Mind Freedom International. Uh, and they're actually spearheading this uh, summit thing. But they also have this program called the Mind Freedom Shield, where when people are being faced or threatened with uh, psychiatric imprisonment or forced drugging, they can ask for this alert to go out and have people really uh, come together and put pressure to try and get that stopped. And it's had, you know, some success. It's not always successful, but I, I, I really support that effort. And so I, I'm on Maui, uh, but I'm not on vacation, <laughs> but I am on Maui. So really, um, this is a, a human rights issue. So for all listeners out there, uh, Jim Gottstein has been uh, a powerful force in being able to protect the rights of those who've been identified as psychiatrically or medically ill. But more, more importantly, he's taken his own personal risks to be able to, to share information, to be able to protect the public. And I think that's where we're at as a radically genuine podcast and trying to support a movement where there is open dialogue and there's discussion where people can make the best informed decisions for their own health, regardless of whether it's psychiatric drugs. I mean, we've talked about this, Sean, with, uh, with the COVID response and uh, mandation of, of vaccines and so forth. And this really is a human rights issue. So on a podcast that wants to have these radically genuine conversations, you know, we're deeply appreciative for having Jim Gottstein as a guest. Jim, thank you so much for joining the Radically Genuine Podcast. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.